Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Rebecca D. Costa about disruptive technologies, predictive analytics, and the future of work. Rebecca Costa, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have the chance to talk with you. Uh, anytime I get to to talk with someone who is a self-proclaimed futurist, uh, I get really excited because I I feel like that that's what I aspire to be. I want to I want to um, be a bit of a futurist myself. Uh, and as I consider, you know, changing nature of work and the future of work, uh, it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And I know your background is so interesting. Uh, it's it's going to be a really fun discussion today. Uh, to get started off, I want to just uh, quickly share with listeners um, Rebecca's bio. Uh, Rebecca D. Costa is an American sociobiologist and futurist. She's a preeminent global expert on the subject of fast adaptation and recipient of the prestigious Edwin, Edward O. Wilson Biodiversity Technology Award. Her career spans four decades of working with founders, key executives, and venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. Costa's first book, The Watchman's Rattle, A Radical New Theory of Collapse, was an international bestseller. Her follow-on book, titled On the Verge, was introduced in 2017 to critical acclaim, shooting to the top of Amazon's number one new business releases. Costa's work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, uh, SF Chronicle, The Guardian, and other leading publications. For more information, you can visit her at her website. I'll share that link in the show notes. Um, so again, what an uh, interesting, fascinating background, um, sociobiologist and futurist, um, uh, accomplished author and thought leader. It's really an honor to have the chance to talk with you today. Well, thank you. Um, I always worry about the title futurist, and I think I need to point out to people that I'm a scientist by training and I don't talk to dead people. I don't read tarot <laughs> cards or how the stars are aligned in the heavens. Um, and I can't tell you what stocks to buy. So, you know, might as well get that out of the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, and I, I think the same way. You know, I, I, whenever I talk about the future of work with audiences, you know, I'll start out by saying, you know, nobody actually has a crystal ball. We don't actually know what the future will look like, but we can examine past trends and trajectories and we can um, extrapolate from those where we think things might be going, right? So we just make educated guesses based on the data um, and how they might inform the future, understanding that different scenarios could play out. Uh, and yeah, I, I, we don't have a crystal ball, but but we do have um, basis for making educated, informed um, commentary about what things could look like in the future in society. As, uh, as you know from my work, 
we don't have a crystal ball, but we're working on one. And, <laughs> That's right. uh, and, and I think the point that everyone needs to realize is we're generating such an incredible mass of data um, on all things, right? From new scientific breakthroughs to new technologies to monitoring human behavior just literally everything is it, it, it we're going through this incredible explosion of data um and uh and that's being combined with uh very very fast computing power and predictive algorithms that we never had before that can look at billions of points of data and then predict what the next action might be so we're getting increasingly accurate and a good example, a really simple example is last year we launched the GOES weather satellites, right? Which gave us, just overnight, gave us 10 times more weather data than we've ever had. In 24 hours, we went to 10 times more weather data and 10 times more weather data, I can't tell you the impact that has on more precise um, uh, tracking of hurricanes, flooding, dangerous storms. So, you know, it, it, all of that data combined together is indicating patterns and the probability that the next action will be this specific action. And, um, and, and that started quite a while ago. Um, there was a, um, a, a company uh, in uh, Scandinavia that wondered if they could collect uh, a lot of just data in the public sphere. They, they didn't want to go to governments. They didn't want to invade anyone's privacy. And they wanted to know if they could predict a revolution or uh, a collapse of a government. And, um, and, then they, and they were able to do that. They predicted the Arab Spring accurately. So um, you can imagine what the next step was. The CIA was really quick to get in there and, <laughs> and, and hire these, these brainiacs. And, and, uh, and it's surprising people that that was you know, 15 years ago. 15, 20 years ago, that they were already working on these predictive algorithms to look at the stability of governments, uh, of currencies, so that there wouldn't, so that we wouldn't be shocked by a sudden currency collapse. Things like that that we're just getting to be very, very accurate on. Yeah, and so you're you're, you're talking about predictive analytics, and that's a term that probably most uh, listeners are familiar with. Um, but it's also a term that probably sends a shiver up the spine of many uh, because a lot of people simply, if it's if anything related to math or statistics or, or anything quantitative, they get nervous. Um, so when I, when I interact with people, I, I often talk about people analytics, descriptive analytics, predictive analytics, um, and, and I can see people's faces gloss over. Um, how, how would you describe that to people? What does that mean? to have predictive analytics and why is it, it important just for simply means it simply means taking a lot of data looking at it and then looking for similarities and patterns that's all it is it's it's not really you don't really have to be a math wizard or a science wizard to understand that the more data points you have one one point on a graph is nothing two points on a graph might be a trend you start to get billions of points going in a certain direction Right then, you have a clear line, and you know where the next point is going to be located. We've all had simple math and had to work those things out on graph paper, so we understand that the more points you have, the more likely you can uh, you can predict where the line is going to go on the graph. That's the simple, uh, I think, a simple way to look at how predictive analytics is. We've gotten so good at it. The, another example might be facial recognition. 
software. There's 53 missile, uh, muscles in the face and human beings, um, we, we show our emotions and our intentions through those 53 muscles. And so now we can look at somebody and we can predict that uh, with high likelihood, the next action they're going to take, including a violent action. Uh, and, and so we've gotten very, very good at that. And, uh, and, and people say, well, I don't want a camera on me, you know, predicting all my thoughts and all my actions and all, but it's too late. There's cameras on every corner. <laughs> I mean, that train's already left the station. I understand people are concerned about privacy and I don't mean to gloss over it, but you know, there is no privacy. I don't, I don't even know what the discussion is about. You know, I, I, I sometimes work with the largest retailers in the, in the United States and, and globally. And, uh, and I have to tell you that the information that retailers have on you is, is um, you know, is, is many, many uh, folds uh, higher than the gut, what the government's tracking. I was cra I thought it was funny that we were throwing a fit the government was collecting metadata then I was thinking, you know, do you not know what Amazon and Macy's is collecting on you? <laughs> so, yeah, so there, there's really no privacy and, and this idea of trying to put the tooth, toothpaste back in the tube is, if you're a technologist like myself, it's a little bit of a crazy discussion. It's not going to happen. It's too late. Well, and, and not only that, out in public spaces uh, and in stores and such, but we've welcomed it into our homes perhaps yeah. unwittingly. You have smart speakers and, and computers that are on 24-7. Actually, your computer doesn't even have to be on for the CIA to be able to listen in. So, you know, that technology is already working in and we carry our cell phones everywhere vol volitionally. So, you know, that, that, that is what it is. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking just in my home, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I think eight smart speakers um like alexa's or google home that you know those types of things um yeah i mean so i'm like welcoming um big brother to you know come into my home uh yeah. and and i'm i'm aware of that but i also uh you know as we consider technology and the, the benefits of technology versus the, those trade-offs that you you mentioned mm -hmm. you know that's something i've decided you know that that I, I feel the same way. I feel like that ship sailed a long time ago, uh, and <laughs> there's not so. There's I think not there's a there's a uh, an illusion that we like to have that anytime there's a scientific breakthrough or technological breakthrough, that it's all good. It's all upside, and we never want to look at the downside until it smacks us in the face. And uh, the example I, I frequently use is the um, is when Charles Lindbergh had uh, uh, flown the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, he was the recipient of many, many peace prizes um, because it was believed that you could shuttle uh, the heads of state now more conveniently from country to country. And by meeting and talking together, we would avoid future wars. At that particular time, nobody was imagining that those same planes that were going to shuttle all these diplomats everywhere were going to be used to carry bombs to, to foreign nations. So, you know, we, 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 whenever there's a breakthrough or there's a new technology or something, we always think of the positive side of it. We think of the, uh, how wonderful it is to just call out to Alexis to spell a word that we can't spell or, 
or uh, our end an argument with a family member over what is a fact, <laughs> you know, and correct them. I mean, we, we, we want that. We want that convenience and everything. But on the other hand, you know, there's the, the we are inviting intrusion uh, into our privacy. So, you know, it's, it's perfectly natural human behavior to want your cake and eat it too. But I think that if there's a, if there's a room for improvement, it would be for legislators, right, to be more aware of what's coming down the pike in terms of technology and to get ahead of that in terms of public policy. Because as we're seeing right now, they're 20 years too late with Twitter and Facebook on trying to uh, rein that in. It's just too late. And when you're regulating that far down the road, it's just ineffective and such a giant waste of taxpayers' time. You know, so what um, I, I'm trying to work on right now is just to make sure that people in the Senate, the House, their staffers, the White House uh, are educated about what's coming down the pike so that they can make more intelligent public policy decisions, not after the fact. They, so, so that's a case where predictive analytics could really help us. It could help us to get ahead of the dangers and then to make sure that we're um, forging public policy that eliminates the dangers beforehand, before the fact, not after the fact. Yeah, you, gr you bring up uh, several really important points there. And there, I mean, Technology isn't necessarily inherently good or bad. There, there's pros and cons to everything. And so, for example, it, you know, as I think about the future of work and I, in my own research and the work I do with organizations, we talk a lot about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and displacement of jobs, right? Um, and yes, it will displace some tasks, some jobs, but it will also create new jobs that we haven't even conceived of yet, right? Um, that happens every time we have new technological revolutions and we have new, uh, new technologies that transform the workplace. It happened with the Industrial Revolution. It's going to happen again with AI and machine learning. Uh, and so it's not necessarily a question of, you know, AI is bad or AI is good. It's a matter of, like, let's have our eyes wide open and recognize that there are implications, um, that we can leverage the good, but we also have to prepare for some of the negative consequences. And like you said, you know, maybe that happens through legislation. Uh, I, I'm not a big believer that companies are going to self-regulate themselves, uh, you know, to be good actors always. And so, you know, we, we have to be honest about what that means and what that looks like uh, moving forward. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll jokingly talk about, you know, two kind of ends of the spectrum in terms of the future and technology. On the one hand, you have like the Terminator scenario, where you have um, AI progressing into Skynet and then they, they unleash the Terminators on the world. Um, but the, on the other hand, you have like Star Trek where basically you have this utopian future where technology drives utopia. And the reality is somewhere in the middle, I'm sure. Um, it, it's gonna be much more messy than either of those kind of extreme uh, outcomes. Sure, there's, there'll always be room for abuse of technology. Uh, that's going to happen. Uh, but it doesn't mean, as you say, the technology or the science is good or bad. It just is. And you can't stop progress. It's just impossible. People are going to invent things. People are going to create things. 
Um, and, and, you know, you, you, there, there are some issues that come part and parcel with progress. And, and we need a different type of leadership right now, which is getting way out ahead. You know, 10 years down the road, what does the world look like? Because this is a large cruise ship. And when you want to make a right turn, you can't make it on a, you know, in a minute. You have to start the turn now. You know, um, a good example, you know, of, of what we're talking about in artificial intelligence is that if you if you were to accumulate all of the data um, around the activities of of, um, uh, of a, sh a mass violence shooter like uh, like the fellow in Las Vegas that shot up the the concert and everything, there there were so many uh, activities that were going on around him. Uh, sending his girlfriend away and telling her not to come back to the country, giving her $100,000, buying uh, uh, these nighttime more accurate rounds. He um, started gambling very erratically. His father was a, um, uh, a, uh, a very dangerous sociopath that was wanted by the FBI and eventually arrested and spent the rest of his life in prison. And that's a heritable quality. Uh, um, so so any kind of activity like that in, in your genetic history, you don't want to be on, a, on certain um, antidepressants like diazepam. And yet he had been prescribed diazepam four months before that incident happened. That doctor should be looked at. Um, so there, there, were, there were all of these telltale signs leading up to the critical event. And they and and so just imagine uh, a predictive algorithm that takes you all the way up to the moment in which he breaks the glass and points the gun, and suddenly you know minor the movie Minority Report. You remember that movie with Tom Cruise where they had the uh, cognition police would come in and arrest you one split second before you committed the crime because the likelihood you were going to commit it was a hundred percent. At that point, I have to keep reminding myself that wasn't a documentary. <laughs> you know, we, we are there. Uh, we're not at 100%, but we're certainly at in the 80 percentile that we know which people and which activities leading up to criticality are dangerous. And if we have the ability to collect that information in the public domain, what could we do about it? I mean, the government can't come in, the police can't come in and arrest you because we believe that even after that fellow broke the glass and pointed the gun, he could have had a change of heart. And he could have said, I'm not going to do that. And put the guns back in his, uh, you know, in their containers and gone home. So we believe in redemption. And we don't believe in trying to punish somebody for, you know, maybe going too far in, in their planning. So these are the kinds of problems that I think predictive analytics and AI and all of this data is bringing to the forefront is even if we have the data, we don't have the legal means or the public policy or the understanding of what to do with that data. We can't take a preemptive action because our laws are all about punishment after the fact. And we're certainly not prepared as to what to do when we know an event is inevitable. So how do we prepare for, for this future of change? Um, like you said, it's inevitable, it's gonna happen. Uh, 
the only certainty in this world really is that things will change. And, and so organizational leaders need to have a, a, a bigger time horizon, yet we live in a society that honors and really rewards the short term um, in the U.S., you know? Yes, so, so, you know, uh, if I'm a CEO, frankly, my, my board and my shareholders, they care much more about quarterly earnings reports than they care about my three-year, five-year strategic plan or like what I think things will look like in 10 years from now. But that's the kind of leadership we need. And like you said, it takes a long time to, 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 uh, to move a, a, a large ship. Um, you need a lot of lead time. And so we need leaders to think differently. We need them to be ready for organizational change in ways that they haven't been in the past. So what do you see as the path forward there? In, in well, I call it pre-adaptation. I, I, I think we're past adaptation, which is highly reactive. The environment changes, and then we either have what's necessary to adapt, or we have to go acquire what's necessary to adapt successfully. Um, but pre-adaptation is knowing what's coming and beginning that adaptation process prior to. So it gives us the ability to, to completely eliminate or at least quash a negative outcome that we don't want to experience and also seize, the, uh, seize an opportunity that others may not be preparing for, particularly if we see disruption coming. So this is how I really speak to corporate executives and boards of directors of global companies. I'm going, you probably don't know why you need to talk to a sociobiologist about adaptation. That I'm, because you know, you, you're going, well, why, why do I need them on the board? Why do I want them as a, as a consultant or advisor? And, I, and I'm saying, because I'm gonna talk to you about pre-adaptation. I'm gonna talk to you about readiness for disruption and what we can do now. Because the disruption like COVID-19 is coming. It's a matter of, do you understand how to pivot and is your organization prepared for that? It's not the disruptions never coming, it's coming. We don't know what it is. So we have to start that turn now. And I found that many are interested. In fact, I posed an interesting question to um, a fellow who used to head up the business uh, school at Duke University. And I said, I think a really interesting book, and I don't know, I may write it, I'm not sure, but I said a really interesting question is, what would a million year old company look like? How would it be different from how we structure companies today? What would a million year company look like? And he, he stopped eating. We were having lunch and he stopped eating and he said, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And that made me believe there, that has to start. We have to start specifying. If you want to be a company that's around a million years from now instead of next year, and I understand the short-term business plan is to stay in business long enough to have a long-term business plan. I get that. I'm a practical kind of gal. But if you're preparing to be around a million years from now, you take different actions, right? You don't want to go out of business next year, but you've got to, you've got to create the kind of culture and the kind of de departments. You've got to institutionalize innovation 
right? And you've got, and, and that means addressing institutional resistance because we're Pavlovian and we want to repeat the same things that we that made us successful, and then suddenly we turn into Kodak because we can't let go. So, you know, there are certain things that you must do to ensure your longevity and to ensure that you are ready for when disruption comes. And I think we can identify many of those things. I think that's exactly right. Um, and it, it is such a shift. It, it requires such a shift in the mindset of so many because, like you said, we're creatures of habit. Um, we Organizations are structured in such a way to self-perpetuate uh, and to maintain themselves, right? They're not designed generally to be adaptive or pre-adaptive. You know, they're, they're designed to basically continue doing what they were doing. Um, and that's, we, but we need a new kind of organization. We need a new kind of leadership um, to take us into the future, to be prepared for these big shifts and these big changes that are happening. Nobody knew that COVID was gonna happen when it was gonna happen, but we knew something like COVID was gonna happen. Uh, yeah. And we weren't prepared for it at all. Um, and so, you know, this, this is a, this should be a lesson for us. There will be other similar types of situations occur in the future. Um, <laughs> we can't, we don't have that crystal ball. We can't necessarily predict it, uh, like exactly when and where it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, but we know these things will happen. They will continue to happen. Things will get disrupted. We will have new industries emerge. We will have different types of jobs emerge, new technologies that we can't even imagine right now, you know, will be around in 20 years. Um, and, and those that will cause shifts. We just know that that will happen. Um, well, it has been a real pleasure talking with you today. Um, we're, we're about out of time, but I want to make sure that I give you a chance to share with the listeners how they can get in touch with you, how they can find your books uh, and find out more about you. Yeah, we, we post regular videos and articles about the current events and and also the speeches that I make regarding how to pre-dapt on my website. And that's www.rebeccacosta.com. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-C-O-S-T-A.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. It has been a real pleasure talking with you. Um, so much of what you say completely resonates with me. And it's, it's similar to my experience in working with organizations and with leaders. Uh, I think we can and need to do better. Um, and if we do, we'll, we'll make, uh, we'll, we'll have a positive impact, pick impact on the lives of, of those around us that we influence. So thank you. And I encourage my listeners to, to reach out and to look you up and, and find your books, uh, super interesting and, uh, and very informative. So thank you so much. And I hope everyone has a great rest of their week. Thank you, John. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.